Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. I had an opportunity on this past Wednesday to sit down and record an interview with the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Mr. Pierre Polyev, about a number of issues. I don't like pre-recording interviews because inevitably and invariably something else happens between the time of the pre-record and the airing of the interview. There are questions I would ask Mr. Polyev today if we were doing the interview live today, but we'll play back for you how it went last Wednesday when I spoke with the Conservative Party leader. Mr. Polyev, do you suspect or believe Mr. Trudeau has long been in possession of evidence of China's interference in Canada's internal affairs, including federal elections, and do you believe Mr. Trudeau had knowledge of threats to members of your caucus, like Mr. O'Toole and Mr. Chong? I've seen you try to raise that point with the Prime Minister in question period. I've had lots of time to watch, but I don't see any answers coming from the Prime Minister. I do believe he has and has had knowledge of Beijing's interference in multiple elections because CSIS documents that he would have gotten have now been leaked to the media that show that interference. Those documents reveal that Beijing interfered in at least two successive elections, 2019 and 2021. Uh, in the latter election, uh, with the with the stated purpose of keeping the Liberals in power, uh, he would have known that. Whether he knew about the th- specific threats against individual members of Parliament is um, I think likely, uh, but we need uh, proof to the contrary uh, in order to know otherwise. And so far, he has not provided that proof. Um, well, what is clear is he's done absolutely nothing uh, to stop the interference, has not introduced a foreign influence registry to expose the thugs who get paid by foreign regimes to manipulate our politics and intimidate our people. He's allowed Beijing-controlled police stations to operate with impunity usually to intimidate and threaten uh, members of uh, Canadians of Chinese origin. Uh, and uh, he has he allowed, uh, he's allowed this to happen with no obstacles for Beijing. And, and that's probably one of the reasons why they're so determined to keep him, him in power. Uh, what's your view of David Johnston's role as special rapporteur on a public inquiry into China's interference in Canada's internal affairs? And is it time for Mr. Singh and the NDP to declare their support agreement of Mr. Trudeau and the Liberals finished? I pressed Mr. Singh on this in, uh, in a March interview. He said that he wants a public inquiry, but he stops short of ending the agreement that keeps the Liberals in power and it retains uh, the numbers of MPs Mr. Singh has in his caucus. Look, Singh has got to pull his support from the coalition. Otherwise, all he's doing is asking Justin Trudeau nicely to call the public inquiry that Trudeau has been trying to bury. Uh, He instead named uh, Trudeau instead named uh, David Johnston, family friend, ski buddy, 
chalet neighbor and uh, member of the Trudeau Foundation to produce a cover-up report, basically said there's nothing to see here. And the report said nothing about the prime minister's family foundation getting this money. Uh, and how could David Johnson even comment on that? Because he was part of that same foundation. And then he said, uh, some, uh, Johnston said he wasn't in a conflict of interest because he got an opinion from a former judge that, uh, that his involvement with the, the Trudeau Foundation wasn't a problem. Well, the only problem with that is that this former judge himself was part of the Trudeau Foundation. You'd think that every single Canadian uh, is disqualified from investigating this scandal unless they are a member of the Trudeau Foundation. This is a cover-up. It's incestuous insider politics at its very worst. Enough of the games. Let's get an independent judge hired by Parliament do a full inquiry into Beijing's interference in our politics. Yeah, it seems and has seemed for some time that Beijing's interests reach deeply into the Liberal Party of Canada. Let me look at something domestically here. We hear two Western premiers openly challenge Mr. Trudeau's government on his energy slash electricity production demands, the carbon tax increases, and the Prime Minister's Sustainable Jobs Plan. Premiers Moe of Saskatchewan and Smith of Alberta are both on my program this weekend. Where is this leading, do you think? And what are your thoughts on any actions Trudeau and his government may take in this regard and the willingness of Saskatchewan and Alberta to take on Ottawa? Well, Trudeau's plan is lights out. Lights out for numerous provinces by forcing them to shut down their energy supply without anything to replace it with. It's one thing to say you want to end coal and natural gas-powered electricity, but what are you going to do to keep the lights on? Now, my view is that we need to speed up approvals, for example, for natural, sorry, for nuclear power. We have the most advanced nuclear engineers in the world, here in Ontario in particular. We have provinces dedicated to small modular nuclear reactors, but it's going to take 15 years to get these things proved. You could do the same safety and environmental checks in three or four years, and then we'd have clean, emissions-free electricity. But when we have a federal gatekeeper in the way of Justin Trudeau preventing that alternative source of electricity, then the only solution he's offering Alberta and Saskatchewan is that they turn their lights off. And we can't expect that. We'd shut down their economy. We need to green light green projects and get the federal government out of the way so Canadians can get things done. Will you stand with Premiers Moe and Smith on their positions, assuming there's some uh, significant challenge delivered by those two provinces to the federal government on this issue of energy? Will you stand with those two premiers? Generally speaking, yes. I, I mean, we, we, uh, we have uh, you know, an independent federal conservative party. We're not uh, officially a set, uh, aligned with any provincial party, but I do stand for the common sense position of the pre those two premiers and others who believe that we need to have a stable source of electricity. We can't shut down our electrical grid, and we need to speed up approval for low-carbon alternative sources of electricity before we shut down the the sources that we have now. And that's why, uh, I, yes, I do stand with Smith and Moe against Trudeau's gatekeeping and his anti-energy policies. I've been on the issue of crime in this country for 35 years. If you're Prime Minister of Canada, how do you, how do you address and adjust and change the issue of bail and crime generally? That's very straightforward. You just have to reverse the policies 
that Trudeau put in place, which have unleashed this crime wave. He brought in catch and release, which allows the very same offenders who were arrested 60 or 70 times for violence to be released the same day uh, as they're arrested. And then they go out and commit another crime. They're arrested a second time, the same day, and then they're released a third time. And by dinner time, they've, been, they've committed three crimes and been arrested three times. So why don't we leave them in jail in the first place with jail and not bail, jail and not bail for repeat, violent offenders. Second, I'll stop targeting law-abiding hunters and sports shooters and instead go uh, put the money and resources into gun criminals and smugglers. And three, I'll stop giving out taxpayer-funded narcotics, which have proven to cause overdose deaths to skyrocket and led to a mayhem uh, in our streets. Uh, and I'll instead put the same money into recovery and treatment to bring home our loved ones drug-free. C-21, Mr. Polyev, speak to that, please. That's an extremely costly law that will target law-abiding sports shooters and duck hunters. These are the people who have are licensed, law-abiding, trained, and tested. They have extensive RCMP background checks. They, they willingly went through all those steps to get access to a, a, a lawful firearm. Trudeau now wants to spend billions of dollars buying back those licensed firearms from lawful owners and instead of going after the real problem, which is the illegal smuggling of arms from the United States, which are responsible for 80% of gun crime in the city of Toronto, according to its police there. So my plan, my common sense plan, is to allow lawful, law, uh, licensed, trained and tested firearms owners to continue to peacefully uh, use their property, including for hunting, and instead put the money into bolstering our border and jailing the repeat violent gun criminals that are terrorizing our streets. And uh, Mr. Trudeau and his government have made a mess of C-21 in, in Parliament. Um, now that it's passed, how difficult will it be if you become prime minister of this country to rewrite and rescind? Rescind and rewrite. We're going to bring in a common sense firearms law, which uh, allows uh, licensed, law-abiding, trained and tested people to use um, uh, firearms that are appropriate for civilians. Uh, we're also going to protect hunters. Justin Trudeau has said that he will take away guns that are used for hunting. He intends to ban hunting rifles. He tried to add hundreds of hunting rifles to the banned list. I stopped him. He had to back down because I, I caused an uprising in his in the ridings of liberals across rural Canada. So he backed down to me on that. But let me be clear. If Justin Trudeau gets the chance, he will ban all civilian hunting rifles. He will ban paint guns and pellet guns and BB guns. He believes that the problem is law-abiding hunters and Indigenous people and farmers. I believe the problem is criminals. My plan is common sense. His is woke nonsense. Massive numbers of Canadians are suffering economically, financially. Uh, two years ago, 52% of the population was within $200 of not being able to pay their bills at the end of the month. We have the carbon tax increases continuing with the government insisting that it's really, it's, it's revenue neutral, <laughs> hardly. But we have the carbon tax increases uh, continuing 
And we have the Bank of Canada now still looking at potential interest rates rising next week. That will hurt people who are already in pain. Speak to that, please. Well, you're absolutely right, Tim. After eight years of Justin Trudeau, life costs more, work doesn't pay, housing costs have doubled. Is inflationary deficits have sent interest rates soaring. Uh, nine in ten young people say they'll never be able to afford a home. One in five Canadians are skipping meals, and 1.5 million eating at food banks. Some of them asking for help with medical assistance and dying, not because they're sick, but because they're hungry and can't afford food after eight years of Justin Trudeau's inflationary deficits and taxes. And now he wants to raise the carbon tax from 14 cents a liter to 61 cents a liter. It's insane. For the 14 cents a liter carbon tax on farmers and truckers raises the food that they bring to our grocery store. That's why our groceries are so expensive. Now he wants to more. He wants to almost quadruple the tax. Uh, imagine how many people are going to go hungry. How many mothers are going to tell, have to force their kids to skip breakfast in the morning when this tax goes up to 61 cents a liter? Enough. Pierre Polyev's common sense plan to bring home lower prices is to get rid of the inflationary deficits and axe the carbon tax. That will allow people to eat, heat, and house themselves affordably. Final question, wild card question for you. What issue or issues, if the election were held now, if a campaign were underway now, maybe we can project out a year, who knows? Uh, what issue or issues will the next federal election hinge on, do you think? Trudeau and the NDP's 61 cent a liter carbon tax. It'll cost over $2,000 for every family in Canada. It'll kill jobs. It'll drive up food prices. It'll mean many families will have to skip meals. Many farmers will have to close down their multi generational farms and will have to because they can't afford energy inputs and they can't compete with international. Uh, food price uh, uh, from, from countries where they don't have the tax. We'll bring in more foreign food produced in polluting countries and send our money abroad while shutting down our farms at home. That carbon tax will cripple our economy and price our families out of food, heat, and gas. And, uh, only one party will axe the tax. It's the conservative, common sense conservatives. So that'll be the choice. Do you want to axe the tax with the common sense conservatives or do you want to more than quadruple the tax with the woke Trudeau NDP coalition? The clean fuel regulation, Mr. Trudeau's government analyzed and brought forward, or at least brought forward, was analyzed by the parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux, and his team. And the budget officer calls the CFR, the clean fuel regulation, broadly regressive and says its price increase for gasoline and diesel will, by the time it's fully implemented in 2030, be more hurtful to lower-income households in Canada. This is as I understand it. Which prompted the Environment Minister, one Stephen Gilbo, we spoke about him yesterday when Scott Moe joined us, the uh, Premier of Saskatchewan. Mr. Gilbo calls the Parliamentary Budget Officer's report unbalanced, and Gerald Butts, Justin Trudeau's former advisor, ripped the report as incompetence on climate change. As well, Mr. Gilbo accused the parliamentary budget officer of an unbalanced modeling approach in the analysis of the price of pollution. 
There's a lot to get into and a lot to cover. And Mr. Giroux, Yves Giroux, the Parliamentary Budget Officer, has been very good to us with his time in the past. He's back with us today. Mr. Giroux, how are you? I'm good, despite you quoting some of my greatest fans. And that reminds <laughs> me that I don't have just friends in this country, but I'm good nonetheless. Thank you. Well, I, I asked you once some time ago, um, what is it that causes you to lose sleep? And I, I didn't really expect a detailed answer, but you provided me one. Should I start with that? <laughs> Maybe. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with the, um, the clean fuel regulation Mr. Uh, Trudeau's mm -hmm. government is bringing forward. Um, have you said that it's broadly regressive, quote, end quote, and its price increase for gasoline and diesel will, by the time it's fully implemented in 2030, be more hurtful to lower-income households in Canada? Yes, because that's the definition of regressive. It means that it has a proportionally bigger impact on lower-income households, and that's exactly what the clean fuel regulations will do. They'll have an impact in dollar terms that will not be as big for low-income households as those with higher incomes, but as a share of income, it will have a bigger impact on those in the lowest income quintile compared to those at the higher end of the income range. So uh, when Mr. Gilbo, the environment minister, accuses you of uh, being unbalanced or issuing an unbalanced report, I understand that the information you received and which you used to create the report actually originated with his ministry, the uh, Environment and Climate Change Ministry of, of Canada. Is that correct? That's totally accurate. We used the data that was provided to us by Environment and Climate Change Canada. In fact, the 16, 17 cent per liter increase in the price of gasoline and diesel is numbers provided to us by Minister Gilbo's department, as is the impact on the GDP, uh, minus 0.3% or $9 billion, a negative impact on GDP by 2030. These are numbers that were provided to us by Minister Gilbo's own department. And we talked with officials. They did not dispute the conclusions of our report. Um, I'm sure they would not have put it exactly the way we have put it, but nobody is disputing the methodology. Uh, my understanding is that Minister Gilbo and Mr. Butts have issues with the fact that we are making clear that the clean fuel regulations will have costs to ordinary Canadians, virtually everybody who uses a vehicle or fossil fuels like diesel or gasoline, uh, which is the vast majority of Canadians. So it will have cost implications for each and every one of us. Maybe they would have preferred us not to mention that, that these clean fuel regulations will have benefits. Granted, they'll reduce greenhouse gas emissions by up to 27, 26 sorry, million tons of CO2 equivalent by 2030. But this comes with a cost, and that's what our report just mentioned, that there will be cost to these regulations. And your report is based on numbers, not opinions. Exactly. And that's that's a fact. That's a well-known fact that if you force refiners or importers of gasoline and diesel to reduce the greenhouse gas intensity of their fuels, for example, by requesting that they 
blended more biofuels or that they buy carbon offsets or that they change the way they produce oil and, oil and gas, that this will have costs. If it didn't have costs, they would already be doing it. If it was cheaper to blend in biofuels or buy credit, offsetting credits, they would already be doing it because they're looking to maximize their profits. So if they're not doing it already, it's because it has additional costs. It's pretty easy to understand, in, in my opinion. And the numbers are based on what the government provided to us. Now, it's quite something when the minister accuses you of an unbalanced report, when the information you received to create the report came from his ministry. Um, let's get at the carbon tax. You heard uh, the clip I just played from Pierre Polyev in an interview I recorded with the Conservative Party leader on Wednesday. So the carbon tax, your assessment of the tax, as it gathers momentum and increases the cost of fuel, transportation, and heating, and uh, the impact of the tax, what is what is your assessment that, uh, of the impact it will have on families and individuals as we head to 2030 and a major increase in the carbon tax uh, bite? Will the federal rebate cover the increase for all Canadians? Um, it will if you just look at money in, money out. So if you just look at the amount of carbon tax that people will pay directly or indirectly and the additional GST that will be levied on the carbon tax, minus the rebate that households will get, for the majority of households, that will be a net benefit. So, But that's looking just at how much you pay in carbon tax and how much you receive in the rebate, in rebate uh, every quarter, I think. So from that pure money in, money out perspective, yes, most households will be better off, except those that spend, obviously, a lot on, on fossil fuels, gas, diesel, etc. But if you also look at the economic impact, because we all know that if you impose a tax on something, that tends to distort economic activity. So, for example, people who work in the oil and gas sector obviously will be negatively affected, but also those who work in the transportation sector, there will be some negative impacts. And in other sectors that tend to rely more heavily on fossil fuels, there will be economic impacts that will be negative for these sectors. So taking that into account as well, in addition to the investment income for those who own oil and gas stocks or stocks in companies that are more heavily reliant on fossil fuels, then they'll have slightly lower economic returns. So if you combine all these factors, on average, Canadian households will be worse off with a carbon tax than without a carbon tax. If you were to factor in what a household has to pay for commercial goods or for food, groceries, when the transportation sector has to pay more for fuel, that's going to be passed along the line and eventually it will reach the consumer. Is that also factored into your, into your calculations or is that something that we should add to this? No, it's also already factored in our, our models and our, our calculations. We assume full pass-through so that, house, uh, that producers and corporations will not reduce their profits, will pass the cost increases to their customers. Same for the clean fuel regulations. I mean by that that refiners and importers of oil will not reduce their profits, take a hit, and behave as if they were benevolent 
um, corporations that will sacrifice themselves for the greater good. So they'll pass these cost increases to their customers, and that will result in increased costs, uh, be it directly for fossil fuels or indirectly for, for example, I don't know, the bread that gets delivered or food that gets delivered or inputs that go into production processes for, for goods and services that we use. Okay. When we get to the issue of servicing the national debt, that seems to be, because it's a big number, seems to be a sensitive issue with certainly some politicians at the federal level. What, what does it cost us on an annual basis? What does it cost the taxpayers right now, just as far as servicing this trillion dollar plus national debt that we have? So each year, the interest costs on that national debt amount to about $44 billion. And it's set to rise as every year there's more debt that becomes, um, that matures, so that needs to be re refinanced. For example, debt that was issued five, six, seven years ago at 1% or 2%, that becomes due, needs to be refinanced at higher interest rates. So that's one factor that will make this servicing debt, cost servicing debt, the cost of servicing the debt, sorry, higher, and the fact that we have a deficit each and every year that adds to the debt every year. So $44 billion this year, about that, and it's rising steadily to about $45, $46 billion in the next couple of years. So it's $44 billion at least each and every year that we have to pay in interest. So that would be what we would have considered some years ago, not that long ago, actually, pre-COVID, to be three times what a reasonable federal deficit might be. Yep, exactly. Well, during the pandemic, the last numbers I have in front of me were for 21-22, and it was $24.5 So that was just two years ago. As interest rates continue to climb, and they are, we expect them to go up next week, and inflation continues to go up, and I, I, I know it can't go on forever, but how concerned are you about the impact on our financial well-being in this country, um, the individual Canadians' well-being, when we're paying that much to service our national debt? Well, it's the inescapable consequence of having incurred big deficits during the pandemic and before the pandemic to a certain extent, and then after the pandemic. Uh, I don't know if you remember before the pandemic or during the pandemic, the government was really keen on talking about debt servicing costs and the debt service ratio. So that's the share of tax revenues that go towards servicing the debt. And it was at a record low despite the debt. So there's no problem. We can borrow and we can spend. But they've since shifted their speech towards more the debt-to-GDP ratio, which is still low compared to international standards. So there's been a shift in the attention that's put on the debt-service ratio. The interest we pay on debt every year, it went from a favorable measure to still a favorable measure, but a different measure. So the government seems to be keen on shifting the focus. Look here, it's favorable. It's not that expensive. When that measure gets a bit less favorable, they shift the spotlight to another metric that is still favorable by international standards, but on the rise. So, for example, the government was focused 
on a declining debt-to-GDP ratio in the medium term. So they put more emphasis on in the medium term when the government tabled its budget because the debt-to-GDP ratio is increasing this year as a result of an economic slowdown and uh, still a deficit. So the government changes its discourse to ensure that it can say something that is still true and favorable, positive for their own messaging, even though the news are not as good as they were a couple of years ago. Yeah. I expect look here from a magician, but not from a, not from a government, but I guess they do it all the time. Look, let's talk as well. One of the reasons that we have the agreement, and I, I know you're not going to give me a, a political answer ever, and you can't, but we have the agreement between the NDP and the Liberal Party, the Confidence and Supply or Supply and Confidence Agreement. But part of that, the NDP wants a national pharmacare program and a national dental program. What's the cost of those programs? Can you project that or have you? Yeah, we have projected that. The dental care program, I think we've put at $13 billion. But because it's a Sunday afternoon and I don't have all the numbers in front of me, I don't remember exactly what's the cost of a pharmacare program. And I suspect your next question will probably be, can we afford it? Um, <laughs> How did you know that? that? <laughs> uh, I don't know. We've had a few discussions. Yes, we have. Uh, yeah. So the, quest, the answer to that question is it depends. So the government can probably afford that, but eventually it will have to decline some other big, tiget, big ticket items. For example, our allies are keen on Canada increasing its contribution to defense, to NATO, for example. Mm -hmm. And NATO countries have a target of 2% of their GDP being spent on national defense. And Canada falls short of that. So if Canada wants to meet that target, have pharmacare, dental care, daycare, national daycare at $10 a day per kid... It starts to add up, and it may not all be sustainable. Okay, Mr. There might be tax increases. In 2013, and I remember reading this at the time and doing interviews on it, and I may have spoken at that time with our guest who's with us today. England's chief medical officer warned of a health apocalypse as bacteria were learning to overcome antibiotics and new drugs aren't available to counter the situation. She said, quote, antibiotics are losing their effectiveness at a rate that is both alarming and irreversible, similar to global warming. The apocalyptic scenario is that when I need a new hip in 20 years, I'll die from a routine infection because we've run out of antibiotics. Well, here we are 10 years later, and the World Health Organization warns of something called AMR, As a top 10 global public health threat, AMR is antimicrobial resistance. It's the same issue Professor Sally Edwards warned about in 2013. And the British medical journal The Lancet showed that in 2019, 1.27 million deaths were already caused by AMR. And between 2010 and 2019, listen to this, 18 novel antibiotics were introduced across 14 developed nations, Only two of these new antibiotics are available in Canada. Jason Tetro is microbiologist. 
He's the author of The Germ Guy and The Germ Code. He's the host of the Super Awesome Science Show on the Curious Cast Network. Jason, uh, so good to talk to you again. Put this into context for us, please. How much trouble are we in? You know, we first talked about this uh, back in 2014, and that's when we essentially saw the World Health Organization say that antimicrobial resistance, we used to call it antibiotic resistance, but <laughs> we can get into that in a minute, um, was a crisis. And I'll tell you something. Um, for me, it was a crisis in 1996. Because I went to the doctor, I had pneumonia, I wasn't feeling so good, couldn't breathe. Um, she gave me a bug, an antibug, an antibiotic, right? I went home, didn't work. I still had pneumonia. And that was my first encounter with antibiotic resistance. Now, thankfully, she had something else. I was allergic to it, but it still got rid of the infection. That was okay. What's happening, though, is that more and more often, you're going to the doctor, they're having the exact same experience I had in 1996, but then they basically shrug their shoulders and say, well, we don't have anything else. And that's the problem that we're facing now. And over the last, oh, I'd say five years, we've heard numerous stories in the news, like front page type headlines of a person who died of a urinary tract infection or someone who died of a very simple pneumonia, or we're hearing about flesh eating diseases that are happening. And these particular bugs are antibiotic resistant. I mean, it's starting to happen at a point where we're hearing about it in the news. And then the next step, which is what, of course, everyone's warning about, is that it's going to be at your doorstep. Yeah. So I... Uh... March 31st, we talked about this yesterday, and I've been tweeting about it. I've been off for just over two months now, fighting uh, mm -hmm. an illness. I have the prostate cancer, and I had a situation develop that was very much related to that. My kidneys essentially shut down. Oh, yeah. And I was rushed to an emergency uh, room at Oakville Trafalgar Hospital, where the ER doctors were not sure I was going to survive the afternoon. Mm -hmm. So they did their magic on me, and they transferred me to the... Uh, intensive care unit where I was for four days and then down to another unit in the hospital for another eight days. I'm assuming that they used at least some antibiotics to keep me going or get me better, get me stable and get, keep me going. Um, the, that was great. But are we in a situation now where some people are going to potentially face a similar reality and the bugs will sneer at the antibiotic and, and harm that person further. I've seen it. Um, I, I, I have friends who have had husbands and colleagues go into the hospital and they have a simple acinetobacter infection or they have a simple Cubsiella infection and they're in the hospital for weeks, if not months. Some end up in ICU as a result of the fact that they just simply cannot get rid of this bug. And I think in your case, first off, I'm so glad you made it. Thank you. So <laughs> am I. Talk to you in <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, what happened, my goodness. Um, but I mean, I want more stories like yours where people are coming out and fewer of the stories of people who are unfortunately harmed for life or simply don't come out. Um, and, and we're hearing more and more of that as a result of these bugs that essentially can resist antibiotics or antimicrobials. So these bugs are just generally, or in a, on a broad, more broad scale, becoming aware of how to defeat the antibiotics. But antibiotics are everywhere in our lives. We, the the, the mm. food we eat, right? The animals that are in the food chain, they're fed, they're fed antibiotics. 
Oh, yeah. And, and that's something that I've been promoting for over 10 years now is, you know, what I call antibiotic abstinence in agriculture. I mean, we can have a very sustainable agricultural system without the use of antibiotics. Now, you've probably seen commercials from, you know, restaurants and other companies saying, well, we never use antibiotics in our meat or we never use antibiotics in our feed. Right. That's great to hear. But again, we need to have that as a universal so that we have fewer antibiotics in the system. Because, and I want people to hear this and, and think about this. It's not the fact that the antibiotic is in the feed that's the problem. It's the fact that the antibiotic goes into the runoff, which then goes into the stream, which then goes into the river, which then goes downstream and ends up in a bacterium that eventually is going to end up back in the food chain and back into you. So it's not just the farm itself. It's the entire ecosystem where that antibiotic is going to have an effect. And I get it. It probably means nothing to those people who are listening right now. But when it comes to your doorstep and you go and you say, I would like to have an antibiotic, and they're like, well, we don't know if it's going to be effective or not, that is why you want to make sure it's not in the feed. What do we do now? Well, basically, at this point, we have two options. One, we start becoming more diligent, um, or we use stewardship with our antibiotics, not only in medicine, but in agriculture. And two, we start using all of the different options that we currently have to be able to look at how we can fight um, not just bacteria, but viruses and yeast and, and all sorts of fungi and everything using non-antibiotics, things like bacteriophages, which are viruses that only attack bacteria. That's coming around. We can use nanoparticles, which are known for taking out these um, pathogens, and, and that's going to be fantastic. We can then start looking at other kind of antimicrobials for which we're not going to have any kind of resistance. The fact of the matter is, is we were doing this in the 1940s, and then antibiotics came around, and we're like, oh, we don't need to do that anymore. We need to literally go back to the future and start doing what we were doing all the way back then. You know, I was shocked when I saw the uh, the information about the projections that, that uh, by 2050, yeah. this issue is going to cost Canada's healthcare system an additional $7.6 billion a year. But where do you spend this? And, well, and the thing is, is that that's the healthcare system, okay? We're not talking about productivity. We already know that antibiotic resistance can have approximately a 35% effect on an individual's productivity over the course of a year, because instead of getting better and then going back to work, they're too busy trying to fight off a bug. And so imagine what that happened, what that's like if we start having larger amounts of people having antibiotic resistant infections or antimicrobial resistant infections. And then all of a sudden start thinking about what it's like when beds in healthcare facilities are full because you're treating these individuals and yeah. you no longer have the ability to get into a bed. I mean, we're already hearing about people in hallways in emergency rooms. Like it snowballs, but it always starts with you having to understand that that antibiotic that you're getting when you're having a cold may not be necessary. We could be in pre-penicillin days or are we already there? Well, we already are with gonorrhea and some of the acinetobacters and candida oris. So these, we're already there with some of these bugs. It's just we're getting there with more bugs. And if we do get there with something like, say, a streptococcus um, that is known for causing not only strep throat but also flesh-eating disease, then we really got a problem. You're scaring me. Yeah. You are. You're scaring <laughs> the hell out of me. I've been doing this for well over 15 have. years. 
And I've seen some improvements here in Canada, thankfully, but I have not seen improvements in other countries in, in the world. And sometimes you just have to shake your head. So for our listeners who want to find you, where would you send them? So if you happen to tweet, um, I'm at J.A. Tetro. Um, and if you want to reach out to me directly, just Google me, Jason Tetro, the germ guy, and uh, you, you'll find places where you can send me emails and you can also head over to my blog. And of course, my, the Super Awesome Science Show. I would love it if you listen to it. Believe me, it's not as morbid as I am today. Sometimes you'll laugh, sometimes you'll cry, but you'll definitely be entertained. You're an amazing communicator. We're about to speak with Peter in British Columbia a former business owner who sent me a disturbing email about an issue not talked about on radio. Very much. Peter uh, writes in part, when China interference and Alberta elections dominate, this issue isn't discussed. He wrote about how housing unaffordability and household debt is talked about a great deal, as are maxed out credit cards. And then he wrote, I hear nobody talking about all the Canadians who are already living in their vehicles. I'm one of those Canadians living in my vehicle. It's brutal, it's tiring, and it's not cheap. In just four weeks of living in my vehicle, I'm exhausted from lack of sleep, I'm sore, I'm hungry, I'm job hunting feverishly, and I'm watching my credit score plummet as I can't keep up with minimum payments. My little 2012 Ford Escape doesn't have a kitchen. I hope that despite your show's full roster, there's a way to shine a little light on the plight of us who've already fallen through the cracks. You bet. Peter, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for sending the email. How does it feel to you to hear me read back to you the words you sent me? Well, I would say, again, exactly the same thing. Thank you, Roy, for uh, for this. And, and before we go any further, it's so good to hear you back, and I wish you continued improved health. Thank you. Thank you. And I know you've had your, uh, your bouts with cancer as well. I have, yes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing, and I think that uh, where a lot of people think we have moved on from COVID, there are a lot of people that, um, during the mandates, and in what I consider to be an overreach in many ways, uh, whether it's families, generational money saved up and put into a restaurant that was then uh, shut down and closed permanently, or whether it was me as a realtor who, who uh, got, you know, got struck by the mandates and lost my business. A lot of us have been treading water in over the last year since the mandates ended and treading water, but now treading with the nose under the surface. So you went to sleep in your car last night. You've been doing this for four weeks. Yeah. What's that like for you to hunt for a place, as you wrote to me, where I can, where I can stay and not be shooed away? What's that like to go to sleep in your car that, that, that last night and know that's where you're going to wake up tomorrow morning or this morning? <laughs> well, it's not entirely comfortable. No. Uh, but uh, the... Probably the, the least comfortable part of it is trying to find a place to perch where you won't get shooed away. Um, most parking lots have signs that say over, no overnight parking, so that, that's out. Uh, and so while you may get to sleep, 
in a in a semi comfortable position in your driver's seat, uh, you don't ever sleep deep uh, because you're there's either traffic driving by or there's somebody that walks by or you're afraid of of uh, you know somebody rapping on the window and saying move along, and so you never sleep deep. And after after four plus weeks of that now, that is starting to add up, and I am tired. Yeah, you wrote it's brutal, it's tiring. And it's not cheap, and you don't have a kitchen in the car. I mean, this is this this is where this is home now. This is this is where you live for now. But it's right. A, yeah, and if I were to go to the food banks, and they're over a run already, but yeah, ninety percent of what you take away from the food bank, you you need to prep it in a kitchen. Mm-hmm. So that that doesn't work. And, and you and you wrote to me as well that you see more and more people in the same terrible predicament that you're dealing with. That's correct. And, and you know, there's every night where I, wherever I do find a little place to tuck away, I see three, four, six, eight other cars doing the same thing. And so some people have said to me, they said, well, why don't you get a little trailer? Well, you, that's impossible. First, I can't afford one, and then to license it, and et cetera. Uh, but secondly, as soon as you have a little trailer attached, you make a spectacle of yourself, and then you can't just tuck away. Uh, but the, some of the other people I see in their vehicles are single parents with kids. So I, compared to that, I have it easy. What's the psychological impact, Peter? <sighs> well, there's dignity uh, attached. Uh, so... You know, I don't want to go and broadcast to everybody I know. Look at, uh, look at me. I'm homeless. Uh, I, I, on one hand, I want to try to maintain my dignity. On the other hand, a lot of that dignity is already out the window, and you just got to figure out how am I going to make it to the next day. Uh, and when I say to the next day, I mean I'm picking up jobs that I can go do, uh, you know, in the next day or two as much as I possibly can. And now that I've lost my business, of course, you know, I'm leaning on my handyman work to try to drum up jobs. And if I do drum up jobs that pay a little, uh, then I have to figure out after a month of doing this, do I actually physically have the energy to go and do it? (laughs) So it's a bit of a catch-22. Yeah. Bills to pay? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Maxed out credit cards. This is, this is all part of swimming with my nose under the surface now. And, and those credit card companies are somehow allowed to charge nearly loan shark rates, and there's no mercy. Uh, it's expensive to be poor. Uh, there's, there's costs involved that people that haven't experienced this don't realize. Costs like NSF fees, overdue fees, et cetera, et cetera. These are costs that, that you have to, that you run into when you can't keep up with your payments. And then there's the phone calls, the nonstop phone calls that will make you absolutely insane. The phone calls from collection agencies and, and overdue credit cards, et cetera. And there's no mercy there either. They call and call and call. And, and pretty soon you just want to pull your hair out and, and throw the phone away. So, so you wrote, and you just mentioned to, uh, you wrote to me, you're job hunting feverishly, and you just talked about trying to find a job that you can work at for one day or two. If you're looking for more uh, consistent employment, what are the challenges? Like, 
providing a, a, an address to a potential employer? Or, you know, well, well that, that's part of it. Another part of it, and I'll just speak for myself personally, I'm in my 60s. Mm-hmm. And I, I have had a, a couple of physical uh, uh, negatives uh, from a car accident, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I have a torn meniscus in my left knee. So I can't just go and say yes to every physical labor job that's out there. I wouldn't last. I, I, and I know that. I'm, I have physical limitations. Uh, but I have been putting in lots and lots and lots of, of resumes and been turned down every single time. Uh, and so I'm drumming up handyman work, and it's not great. It is very physical. Uh, and i got to tell you, I've been looking at, at social assistance as well. Now, there's something that needs fixing, in my opinion. Expand on that, please. Well, so in B.C., if you apply for social assistance, you can get around $900. But uh, if you don't have a residence, if it, half of that goes to paying your rent. So if you don't have a, a home, you only get half of that. And then if you do go out and generate some work, like I'm doing, as soon as you've earned $400 or more, the social assistance is gone. Well, first of all, that whole amount of social assistance only pays maybe half the month's rent here in B.C. for a one-bedroom. And, and, and that's the full social system. So when you start cutting that down, like cutting that in half, and then eliminating it altogether, if you drum up a little bit of work, well, then, then it, it serves no purpose at all. Mm-hmm. And I have an idea of how that could be improved. And, I, and it's, it's a little bit frustrating because, you know, when I see the government doling out so much money to immigrants and um, throwing money around, you know, $6,000 a night hotel suites, etc. I would like to see social assistance run on a credit score where for those people that are really legitimately trying that that boosts their credit and thus their their income on what they can get. So, and I realize social assistance is supposed to be temporary. It's not a permanent fix at all. It should never be. But with the numbers of us that are now can't tread the water anymore since the COVID mandates fell. For those of us that are really legitimately trying, and and many good business people are in my shoes now, I I think there needs to be a little bit more cooperation from the provincial and and maybe the federal government too, but especially the provincial government. Yeah, you know, we, we hear about rents going up astronomically across the country and invariably, I mean, it's going to happen. People are not going to be able to meet rents when they go to a certain level because they don't have the resources to pay for everything. And they may very well be joining you, living in their cars yeah. across the country. And this is a country with a terrible winter. Peter, What do you have hope? Well, <laughs> I'm sorry yeah, to ask I, uh, that, really. I, I really am sorry to ask that. No, no, it's, it's a necessary question, I think. Uh, because I think that a lot of people in this situation uh, could get very depressed. And is there any wonder why there's uh, why suicide rates are up and and, and drug uh, drug overdoses are up, etc.? Uh, but it could be easy to get depressed. I'm chronically positive, 
So I guess I'm a little bit lucky there. Got it from my mama. Uh, but is there a hope? Well, you know, God bless Pierre Paulia for, ta- for, for ch- championing the people that are living in their parents' basements. But that still isn't far enough. Uh, there's no parents. There's no basement. There's no way I could dream of owning a house at this point. And even the thought of renting is way beyond the spectrum right now. Right now, it's a matter of how do I get, do, can, I, can I afford another $15 in the gas tank to get to the next handyman job? Look, and, and, then what, and then what do I eat? Yeah, um, and I'm sick and tired of bread, jam sandwiches. I, I, don't, I don't want to geographically pinpoint you. But if there's somebody listening to this program right now and they feel that they may have something for you in the way of employment that is steady and permanent and gives you an opportunity to rebuild your life, can you give me some general geographic idea and then people can get in touch with me and I can try to put the trivia together? Yeah, sure. I'm in, I'm in Kelowna. I'm, I'm in the general Kelowna area. Uh, and, yeah, I, I, I welcome... Uh, that kind of a leg up, or that kind of charity, uh, perhaps. Uh, and, and I'm certainly, I love work as far as that goes. Uh, there, there's another aspect to this, Roy, if you don't mind me mentioning something else that's uh, attached to all of this. Not and I, I'm, myself. Peter, I'm very sorry, but I have to take a hard break in, in one minute. Yeah, so, so yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, there, there's, there's uh, another piece of this puzzle, too, and that is there's an extra kick when we're down, and that is, once things are overdue and overdrawn and, and to collection agencies, that's when the credit scores plummet and they go to R9, and that's a seven-year prison sentence. So for those of us that are, that are caught in this trap, there's an extra seven-year prison sentence put upon us with an R9 credit rating with uh, Equifax and TransUnion. And that, doesn't, that makes sure that you won't get a credit card. Well, how do you function in this world without a credit card now? Yeah. Yeah, I'm so sorry for you. I really am. I, I really am sorry for you and people who have been forced into your reality. If somebody in the Kelowna area, and you've been listening and you can help Peter and may have a job for him or something for him, just get in touch with me, Roy at RoyGreenShow.com, and I'll try to put the review together. Peter, I'm going to stay in touch with you. Uh, I really Thank am. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. And it's not just about me. It's all the people that are joining me. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. Thank you for thank you for thank you for sharing this. It's important. Well, thanks for letting me uh, a little bit of air to this. Yeah. Thanks, Roy. Talk soon. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.